Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would convict our hearts, that you would build us up. Father, that you would uh, show to us even our hidden faults, that we might repent and walk in a way that gives glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If we go back a few verses, I think we can surmise that the main thrust of this first chapter of The Apostle Peter's letter is this, God has given you new birth, verse 3, and so because of that new birth, the proof of your faith should be evident, verse 7. From that point on, the Apostle Peter has been giving us some examples of what a working faith looks like. Uh, It means having minds prepared for action. It means having a sobriety of spirit. It means having a fixed hope. It means not being conformed to former lusts. It means holiness after God's holiness. It means a fear of God. It means a faith and hope that are are not in the things of the world, but in God. And so that theme of the, the fruitfulness of life in Christ, or the fruitfulness of the rebirth we have in Christ, or the effects of regeneration, continue in our passage this morning, And in particular, the Apostle Peter teaches us that obedience to God requires love for one another from the heart. Love for one another from the heart. Apostle says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So in other words... Because of God's work in our hearts, giving us new birth, giving us regeneration, love for fellow Christians named here as the brethren will be sincere. It will be without hypocrisy. It will be fervent and it will be from the heart. The Apostle John, um, you remember Peter's racing partner to the, uh, the tomb after they heard that Jesus' body had been Uh, taken. The Apostle John pounds that same theme in his first letter. Here are a few of those verses. Let these sink in. The one who loves his brother 
abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. We know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He still goes on, there are a few more verses where he's pounding home this theme of the importance, the glory, the, the, um, what it means to love one another. He says, beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. And then this, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. In other words, he's lying about loving God. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So the Apostle Peter is saying the same things in this one verse, verse 22. An evidence of the Lord's work in your own heart, an evidence that you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, is this very simple thing. You're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're genuinely going to love them. Note the three ways in which that love is defined in verse 22. And we're not... We've dealt with the content of 23 in, a previous, in the previous passage. It's something that Paul returns to. So we're just going to stick to verse 22 this morning. Right, so, But notice the three ways in which that love is defined. It is a sincere love. It is a love for the brethren. Right? It is a fervent love, and it is a love that comes from the heart. Those four ways that love is, is defined. So taking those one at a time. The first way uh, love of Christians is described is that it is sincere sincere. The love that is worked in our hearts by God when he changes our hearts uh, from hearts of stone to hearts of, of flesh is, is sincere. And another way to put that would be to say that our love is, is without hypocrisy. Literally, the Greek word here is anupokritos, which sounds just like, doesn't it, un hypocritical. Um, Add the negative at the beginning of the word and you end up with, add the negative at the beginning of hypocritical and you get unhypocritical. Works the same way in Greek as in English. Another way to translate this would be genuine or a genuine love or an unfeigned love. An unfeigned love. Now think on that for a moment. What strikes me most about the love the world gives is how it is often feigning love. 
feigning love. The world is always putting on a show of love without having the real deal. Right? All of its songs are about love. All of its LGBT plus movements are about love. All of, everything is about love. All we need is love, right? The Beatles taught us. But the, but the world is putting on a show of love without having the real deal. It's quite easy to make a show of love, isn't it? Right? One dose of, of flattery, one dose of, of emotionalism, another dose of, of just merely expressing your undying devotion to somebody, and you have the elements of a feigned love. This kind of love is a love that wants to get. It's a love that wants to feel. It's a love that wants to receive. It's a love that that uh, is incapable or really um, is incapable of giving, right? It's this love rather than the kind of love that gives. So the hypocrisy of that kind of love is that it's built on expressions of love for someone, but what it seeks really is for itself. It's It's hypocrisy. I love you, and what they mean is, would you please love me back? There's a popular song right now that gets at this. The refrain is, I like me better when I'm with you. I like me better when I'm with you. I know from the first time I'd stay for a long time because I like me better when I'm with you. All right? And that's a hypocritical love. Right, That is a love that is self-seeking. That is a love that is not genuine. That is a love that seeks its own. But we know from Scripture that love, genuine love, unhypocritical love, sincere love is that which does not seek its own. It doesn't seek its own. Right, Sincere love is that kind of love that is, is not merely seeking vibes within... within their hearts, but a a commitment to others, a commitment to their well-being. If you are the kind of person that is in love with being in love, right, uh, you don't know the first thing about a genuine love, right? That is selfish love. That is you trying to build yourself up by an emotional experience, Love is to be committed to the glory and well-being of somebody else. Committed to their glory. Right? That is the love that the Father has for the Son. And the Son has to the Father. We, we read about in John 17, right? They're speaking of one another's glory and doing one another's will. And, and their minds are on other rather than themselves. And so love is to be committed to... Uh, the glory and well-being of another. So let's not get confused about that. Secondly, the Apostle Peter tells us that this sincere love has an object. Other Christians. Other Christians. And let's not get all amorphous about this, right? 
the Christians that we should be committed to the well-being of should be those who are members of our local household of faith, the place in which we live, right? We can get so cosmic about our call to love the brethren. Oh, you know, I love the church invisible. I love all of God's kingdom. I love my brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around uh, the world. And the brother whom we see on a regular basis gets our derision. Right? Because we're living with them. A love for the brethren starts with your commitment to the local church. Do not claim to love the brethren if you do not love the local church and the members of your local church. A love for the brethren starts with your commitment to love. Can I say this? Can I push you a little bit? It starts with you expressing a love toward your pastor and your elders. Right? Because God has given you pastors and elders for your good, for your building up. They're, there, they're here by God's command, having, God having put a call on them, a yoke on them, for your good. And so perhaps your love for your brethren should start with your pastors and elders. But it's not just me saying that. This is what Scripture says. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Some of you have neither appreciated nor have love for those who have chosen to give up their own lives to be sure that you remain on the straight and narrow path. Right? That leads to life. And, and honestly, those men need your encouragement. They will be more committed to your well-being as you give them your encouragement and love. Our love for the brethren is also our love for one another in the congregation. Right? There's, there's good fruit here in this congregation, but like all godliness, we're called to excel still more. Right? Our sacrificial love for one another should deepen, particularly as we spend more and more years together in fellowship and commitment Think of how your love for your spouse has deepened with the passing of the years. Is that true of your love for the people of the church? Or do you find yourself disgruntled? Disgruntled with their personalities? Disgruntled with their particularities? Disgruntled with the amount of perfume they put on in the morning that causes your allergies to go crazy. Right? Think of the divisions that existed in the church in Corinth. Some preferred Apollos, some preferred Paul, some preferred Peter. Brothers were taking other brothers to court because they couldn't settle their financial disputes. And then when they had the opportunity to really love somebody by warning them of their sin, they rather boasted about an incestuous relationship in their church. Again, to make this more practical, a love for the brethren in the church, a commitment to one another in the church means this. It means showing up. It means showing up. 
That's all you have to do to love the brethren. Show up. There's nothing quite so defeating to my wife and myself than on the day of an event that many have spent much time in the church preparing for that we begin to receive those texts. Right? It's it's probably about two to three hours before the event, but we begin getting those texts, giving people giving reasons why they can't make it to this or that. Some are legitimate, of course. I'm vomiting my brains out. We don't want you to come, right? Disfellowshipped immediately if you're vomiting, right? Some others, though, express what seems to be simply just a lack of intensity of love for the brethren. It seems to just be I've got other things to do and I, I don't really want to be with the, the brethren, the church. And it seems to express at times a lack of commitment to one another. And do, do you not realize that beyond the fact that you need to be taught and to be teachable, that your very presence is an expression of love to the brethren? It is to obey this command of the Apostle Peter. Be there. Be incarnational with your church family. Be together. I mean, how many will not stay for the fellowship meal today? And what will your reasons be? I don't need fellowship. I don't need the love of the brethren. I don't need to be present. They'll eat more without me. And everybody will be happy. Well, no, we need you present. Because that's the way that you express your love for the brethren. Man, you'll remember this section from Bonhoeffer's Life Together. It's a little bit long, but I want to share it again. I think this helpfully expresses the very fact that presence is love. Presence. Physical presence, Bonhoeffer writes, of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Now, do do any of you believe that? I mean, really believe that. Longingly, the imprisoned Apostle Paul called, calls his dearly beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to come to him in prison in the last days of his life. He would see him again and have him near. Paul has not forgotten the tears that Timothy shed when they were last parted. Remembering the congregation in Thessalonica, Paul prays night and day exceedingly that we might see your face. The aged John knows that his joy will not be full until he can come to his own people and speak face to face instead of writing with ink. The believer feels no shame, as though he were still living too much in his flesh when he yearns for the physical presence of other Christians. Man was created a body. The Son of Man appeared on the earth in the body. He was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer receives the Lord Christ in the body. And the resurrection of the dead will, be, will bring about the perfected fellowship of God's spiritual, physical creatures. The believer, therefore, lauds the Creator, the Redeemer, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the bodily presence of a brother. Prisoner, the sick, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christ, a fellow Christian, a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. 
Visitors and visited in loneliness recognize in each other the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meet the Lord in reverence and humility and joy. They receive each other's benedictions as the benediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there is so much blessing and joy even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. We have a, a, an embarrassment of riches, right? We can get together whenever we want. He goes on, Bonhoeffer says, it is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken away from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life With other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Does that express your heart? Does that get at the core of your yearnings? Ah, church, fellowship, my brothers and sisters. Does that love for your brethren exist for you? Or is church just another opportunity to pick up an illness from somebody else? That was for my wife. I fear that the love of the brethren is growing cold today because we're sinking more and more deeply into our phones and our devices, which which give us a sense of constant community, which isn't community, right? These devices, um, it's community without bodily presence. That's why what I'm doing up here, preaching before you in the flesh, is getting more and more and more awkward. It's because this is not a way we communicate anymore, right? But it's bodily presence and therefore... It is something that we as Christians should hold on to. We, the church, must resist the way, that our, the way of our culture and, and pursue incarnational living. Pursue life together. Pursue being in proximity to one another bodily. Right? That's, that's where the love of the brethren flourishes. That's where it flourishes. Third, When our souls are purified, our love for one another will be fervent. Peter uses that word fervent. Later in the letter, the Apostle Peter writes, above all. So he's written four chapters, and then he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Fervent love, what is a fervent love? A fervent love is a a love that is zealous. It is the kind of love that does not grow cold after just a few days. It's a love that burns deeply without stopping. 
It is not lukewarm, it is hot. Right? Think about it this way. The fervency of Jesus' love for us was demonstrated in the fact that he laid down his very life for us. Our own fervency toward our brethren will be similar to that. We think that that somehow is an unachievable standard, but it is the standard by which we read about which we read earlier from John's first letter. We know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And again, it's, it's all too easy to get all cosmic and amorphous about this and then to, to make it so theoretical that it can't be applied. Let me give you an example. What about, what about Deacon Workday? No one shows up to Deacon Workdays. No one. The deacons do, but they have to. No one shows up to deacon work days. We like to think that that is because we are busy and there are things that take priority over keeping up the building that we worship in and working alongside other men and women. But, but I think it's rather, you know, I think the failing here is that the elders and deacons have not done a good job teaching you that these days of laboring together is a tangible way for you to love the brethren. It's not about fixing up the building. It's about you loving the brethren. It's about you um, getting joy in the fact that somebody's going to have joy when they go into a very, very clean bathroom. That makes me happy. That is a way to serve me. Now, if we could remodel all of them and get out all the terrible, you know, whatever. But this is a way for us to love one another. All of you benefit from these days. All of us benefit from those deacon work days, new construction, deep clean sanctuary, deep clean nursery, um, you know, new platform up front. Um, but only those who show up are benefiting spiritually. You're just enjoying stuff, but you're not benefiting spiritually. Um, only those who have come to understand that deep cleaning a nursery is love for the brethren, those are the ones that are getting something out of it spiritually. Filling a dumpster with electronics from some closet in the basement that went out of style in the 80s and curriculum from the 70s is love to the brethren. That is love to the brethren. Orderliness is love to the brethren. Now, another example of this so that's Deacon Workday, and, and I, you know, we'll have one in the spring until then, and, and we'll, we'll announce it differently this time. We'll call you to come love your brethren, not come fix things in the church. And we'll see if that convicts your heart. What about the slaughter of the preborn? What about the slaughter of the preborn? I know that you are all opposed to it. I know you're all opposed to it, but I'm not sure how you love the preborn. If you love the preborn, you might feel an obligation to plead with their mothers outside the clinic. Right? Or to call a legislator and remind him of his duty before God. You know, 
am I, so, so am I getting out of line now, right? Um, am I getting too practical, too pointed in what I'm saying? I don't think so. This is the way we love the brethren. It's practical. Love is not merely vibes of his actions. But if you love the preborn, if you love your neighbors, if you love your preborn brethren, then you might think that that zeal that you have to stop abortion in the land might pour out of your fingertips into actual action. No more just expressing your hatred of it. One of the points you should be picking up by now is that love is not merely a feeling, not even primarily a feeling. Love is action done for the glory and well-being of another. Again, John writes, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So not just in word and tongue. We, we should love by expressing things. That is a way to love. God expresses his love for us in his word. But that, doesn't, that isn't where it ends. We should love in deed and truth and action. Being present is love. Being present and committed to others is love. Relieving the burden and stresses of others is love. And a fervent love is one that is deep and lasting. It's zealous. And here's another thing. A fervent love disciplines your heart, which is desperately selfish at times. Right? Fervent love does not wait for feelings to appear in your heart before an action is taken. I'm just not feeling this. You know, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not feeling it, therefore I'm not going to go do something that I could just do with my hands and my mind, which would be loving. I'm just not feeling it. That overwhelming sense of emotion and, 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 and vibes has to take me over before I'm willing to work with my hands and, and loving somebody else. No, love is action. It's seeing some brother in need and relieving his distress. Whether that stress is physical, whether it's spiritual, whatever it may be. John, John reminds us of the physical needs. James reminds us of the fervent love that takes action when spiritual needs are present. James says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Same phrasing as what Peter used, that love that covers a multitude of sins. But in James' application of that same thing, he's saying, look, if you turn a sinner back from the errors of his ways, you've loved him. But that's even hard for us. I mean, many of us would rather deal with somebody's physical needs, but when it comes to telling them to repent of their effeminacy, we're like, no, not my job. I can't do that. Repent of your greed. No, 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 no. That's not going to be perceived as loving, therefore it's not loving. That becomes very difficult for us. But love would call us to it. 
One other thing to mention when it comes to fervency of love is this. A fervent love does not give up when those you are trying to love do not respond with kindness or love themselves. Some people when they are suffering, some people when they are suffering are not given to kindness. Right? I'm not excusing it, but I'm explaining it. Pain often affects the way we react to other people. If we are in chronic pain, we're typically not given to kindness toward others, right? And when someone attempts to love that person, they often react with open unkindness. person who fervently loves, though, does not flee in that sort of circumstance, right? A person who fervently loves gets up every time after getting knocked down, and says, no, I'm going to love you. You can be odious to me. But I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I mean, that is having children. Right? Children are odious and uncontrolled. And yet, we're parents. We're called to love them. And we love them. And we love them. And we love them. And they're full of and vinegar, and we continue to love them. And so that's, that's a fervency of love. That's a fervency of love that continues on even in, in constantly being rebuffed, right? A mom's love perseveres through the adolescent years of her children without stopping. A fervent love is not easily turned away. It's obnoxiously persistent. It keeps going and going and going and going. And that's not just for the lovely, that's for the unlovely. That's what I'm saying here. Finally, the Apostle Peter mentions that our fervent love should be from the heart. From the heart. What does that mean? Um, we like to think of love and hearts together. We, we um, say, I heart you when we write cards, right? And the heart, the, this thing that pulses and pumps blood through our chests, has become this, this picture, this metaphor, or whatever you call it, of, of love. Right? And, and here Paul says, from the heart. And what does he mean by that? Is that where our feelings finally enter into this equation of what love is? Well, no, not really. When the Apostle Peter speaks of the heart and love proceeding from the heart, he's speaking in the same way that Jesus speaks when he was teaching the Apostles. And Jesus said, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. When we were converted, when we were born again, there is a heart change. The prophet Ezekiel describes that heart change in this way. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The Apostle Paul says the same thing as Ezekiel. He says it this way, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The love we have for our brethren, in other words, is is a supernatural work. It's a Holy Spirit wrought thing. It is the Holy Spirit's work in us. It's, the on, it's only by God at work in us that the hardness of heart, 
that leads us to be angry at others all the time fades away and is replaced by love. And here's the amazing thing about a love that comes from the heart that has been recreated by the Holy Spirit. Not only is it able to love those who are lovable, it's able to love those who have sinned against us. We know this is true. The love of God for us, which covers a multitude of sins, arises from the mercy of God toward His enemies. Right? That is also true of us. Love from the heart. Love from a regenerate heart which knows the, of the mercy of Almighty God is able to forgive those who have sinned against us. And honestly speaking, who hasn't sinned against you? Everybody has. Everybody has. We've all, we all in here have sinned against each other in various ways. If you go through your life only loving the lovable, you've got no one to love. You'll end up not loving anyone. There'll be no one left. There'll be no, it'll be a very short list. Right? And if God had taken that same standard, you and all of us would be damned. There is love toward us expressed in the forgiveness of our sins. Is that true of you? Is there love you have that is expressed by forgiving others who have sinned against you? That's how God has loved you. And so that, dear brothers and sisters, is perhaps the highest expression of a love that is without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy, that is fervent, and that is from the heart. God has given His children that kind of heart. And so, so let the Holy Spirit melt your hearts. And as you have received, so you should offer. As you have received from God his immense forgiving love, so you should offer to others.